Dean Bible Ministries presents the Bible teaching ministry of Dr. Robert Dean, pastor of West Houston Bible Church. These and other Bible lessons are available from www.deanbible.org. Now let's listen to our lesson from God's Word, the Bible. How shall a young man cleanse his way? By taking heed thereto according to thy word. Thy word have I hid in my heart, that I might not sin against thee. Thy word is a lamp unto my feet, and a light unto my path. Jesus prayed to the Father, Sanctify them in truth. Thy word is truth. For the grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God shall stand forever. Before we get started, let's have a few moments of silent prayer so we make sure we are spiritually prepared to study God's Word, make sure we're in fellowship. 1 John 1, nine says that if we confess our sins, God is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. So we'll have a few moments of silent prayer and then I will open in prayer. Let's pray. Father, we're thankful we can come together as a body of believers to study your word, that we have the freedom in this nation to do so, even though there are on the horizon the threats and rumors of threats that uh, freedoms such as these we enjoy are uh, under attack. We pray that you will preserve them, that this nation may continue to freely teach your word and uh, send out missionaries, support Israel. Father, we pray that you might encourage us from your word this evening, that we might be strengthened spiritually to face whatever trials and tests that we have in our lives. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Open your Bibles to Hebrews chapter 10. Hebrews chapter 10, and we'll begin near where we left off last time in Hebrews 10.24. Hebrews 10.24. Now, when we come to these, this last part of Hebrews chapter 10, there are these three distinct uh, commands that are given in the what is called the hortatory subjunctive, which is uh, usually a first-person uh, plural where the writer includes himself in the action, that this is recognizing he has as much responsibility to fulfill these commands as those that he is addressing, and he's stating this in what would be a first-person imperative, although you really don't have a first-person imperative as such in the language, but that's how the uh, hortatory subjunctive works. Let us do this means we must do this. We should do this. And so when you come to the last part of Hebrews chapter this, this one section, Hebrews 10, 24 and 25, it concludes the teaching section that began back in 7-1, and it's concluding with these three mandates. And the three mandates begin, verse 22, let us draw near with a true heart of full assurance, focusing on our personal fellowship, relationship with God based on being in fellowship, forgiveness, having a cleansed a heart, and the picture there is of of uh, of that positional cleansing that takes place as a result of salvation, justification. Second, moving on beyond simple justification to the next command, let us hold fast 
the confession of our hope without wavering. And I said that is holding on to basic doctrine. It has amazed me. In fact, I was having a conversation yesterday with uh, my good friend Tommy Ice, and we were bemoaning the fact we could not understand how so many people we have known over the years have departed from dispensationalism or a free grace gospel or even the philosophy of ministry that the role of the church is to be a teaching environment. And they're off into all kinds of church growth uh, gimmicks or they're just never even mentioned the word dispensationalism or prophecy or anything much beyond very basic pablum, all for various reasons. And that's what they've done is they've given up. They have not held fast to that confession that they were given. When I think back on my life, and I think back on the teaching that I received from the pulpit uh, at Baraka Church where I grew up, when I think of the teaching that I heard uh, when I went to Camp Nile and many of my counselors and many of the speakers that came were either uh, were somehow, many of them were on the way to the, either the pastoral ministry or the mission field, and a lot of them had also come out of uh, Baraka Church. And so the, there was a consistency in the teaching, and there was a, a solid emphasis. But I, can, I look back to what I was taught, handed, as it were, a body of doctrine, uh, from those men and from the teachers I had at Dallas Seminary. And then you come along now and you look at what is taught and what is emphasized, and you just wonder what, what happened. How did, and, and many people who, of, of those same people that were teaching one thing and had one philosophy back in the 60s or 70s are no longer there. You know, they've moved. They've got different ideas. They've changed in some way. And you just wonder, what in the world happened to cause this? See, they haven't held fast to that confession of faith. And I think in many ways we see in our world today where people don't really understand the, the what they believe and why they believe it. And those two things really have to go together. Sometimes they're, they're, they're taught a what, but they never really understand the why. They don't understand the exegesis that underlies the position. Sometimes they don't really understand the position they held. And in some cases, they get hit with a situation in life, some kind of testing or tragedy. Sometimes they get faced with disappointment. I know that there have been pastors who have faced uh, various disappointments in the ministry. They had high hopes. They had great ambitions. They had tremendous uh, talents, and then things didn't work out, and they were God was taking them through the wilderness, and rather than being patient in their wilderness testing, they decided they needed to somehow figure out how to bring water to the to the desert, and how to uh, uh, make the desert bloom, and all these other things through man-made gimmicks. And so, rather than waiting patiently on the Lord and teaching the truth, they started changing, modifying, diluting. Uh, in order to somehow get a greater he- hearing, uh, get more people there, and maybe they thought, well, dispensationalism is too, um, that's not very popular, so I'm not even going to talk about that. 
uh, other things of that nature and beginning to just dumb down what came out of the pulpit. So that's just some examples of those who have not held fast that confession of hope without wavering. And then the third command is to let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good deeds. That's your basic command, which we began to look at last time in verse 24. And I just want to review the emphasis here. The word translated consider is the Greek word kata noeo. The kata is a a preposition that intensifies the meaning of the main verb, which is noeo, uh, you've heard the, the Greek word nous, which refers to the mind. Uh, kata nueo has to do with an intensified form of thinking. Nueo is also thought, but when you put the kata in front of it, it intensifies the meaning. And it has that idea that we should give some intense, serious, focused thought to something. It's the old activity of brainstorming. I don't know if you ever went through that, go through that activity, but you're trying to solve a problem or face a situation, so you just sit down and start cranking out ideas. And sometimes if you get with a couple of other people, you're trying to work through a situation, then there's sort of a synergism that occurs there, synergy that occurs with other people, and you begin to come off up with different ideas and play off of each other. And that's the idea here. It's giving some serious thought and contemplation to a course of action, and it involves one another. It involves the body of Christ. Now, this idea that we're going to see a little more fully tonight on the one another isn't just talking about getting together with other believers down at Starbucks where you can enjoy a a good cup of bitter coffee over roasted coffee, in my opinion, or unless it's iced coffee. I love their iced coffee, but their other stuff I think is a little over-roasted, and uh, you can enjoy, you can talk to friends, you can go to a restaurant, you can work out together, you can go shooting together, you can do all kinds of things with other believers, but that's not the one another idea that we have, have from Paul. It's not just believers getting together and do things, and those can all be great and wonderful things, and we all enjoy that kind of social engagement with other believers, and sometimes it really does become Christian fellowship because we start talking about things related to the Word and the Christian life, and we can encourage each other. But that isn't the idea here, because when we get into the next verse, into verse 25, where there is the negative and positive presented, and the negative is not forsaking the assembling of ourselves together, we'll see that the word for forsake means to abandon or to give up the assembling together, and that is from a, the Greek word epi-sunagoge. Now, where do you think, what word do you think we speak of in English that we get from the word sunagoge? Synagogue. And to whom is the writer of Hebrews speaking? To Jews. So when they hear this word, this verb epi-sunagoge, and... Um, they're going to be thinking specifically about the gathering together in the synagogue, the assembly of believers, as it was in the Old Testament, for the purpose of studying the word prayer, worship, and uh, also mutual encouragement. And so the use of the vocabulary here is not talking about 
other kinds of ways in which we get together socially with believers, but it's talking about how we get together within the specific context of the meeting of the local church, the meeting with other believers for the primary purpose of the teaching of the Word of God. But there are secondary objectives that are set forth for the meeting of the church, as we'll see over the next couple of weeks as we go through various passages such as 1 Corinthians 12, Ephesians 4, and a couple of other places uh, in Acts. And so the idea here of considering stirring up one another is within the context of this assembling together for a uh, particular uh, particular purpose. And that's where this is taking place. It's not taking place down at the uh, local coffee shop or restaurant. Uh, it's taking place within the context of the meeting of the local church and is a byproduct of the study of the word. And that's I think, is very important because people forget that. You get every, I think, every decade, there are people, there are seminary professors and pastors that come up with new new ideas on how to make the church more more dynamic, more fun, uh, so your church can grow, things like that. There's always these kind of renewal movements. Sometimes they're needed because the church stagnates, gets away from doctrine. Sometimes people think the church has stagnated because they're really just tired of learning doctrine. They don't think doctrine works anymore, so we have to do something to uh, placate the masses out there, and we have to understand what they want and give them what they want, and then our church can grow. And if it's growing, then that means God must be blessing. I mean, there, I can't tell you how many people who believe that that is, that is the, that is the established presupposition of their thinking is that if the church has, grows from 50 people to 500 people to 5,000 people, then God has blessed us. But the, uh, uh, one of the pastors that I studied under, uh, at one time and, uh, who ordained me, made a comment one time. He said, anybody with, with personality and drive and business know-how can build any organization to be successful. But that doesn't mean that God the Holy Spirit had anything to do with it. And so size and numbers of a local church don't have anything to do with whether God is blessing that local church. And there are many people who in the energy of the flesh can go out and build Huge churches, and you can drive up and down the freeways in Houston or Dallas or, or Washington or any, any major city, and you can see these monuments to the flesh. And no doctrine is being taught there, and in some cases uh, they might get the gospel right on occasion because a stopped watch is right at least twice a day. So it just happens by chance, but it's not intentional. And some of the stories that I hear about what's going on in some of the larger churches around Houston are just enough to make you want to think if people have just lost their their common sense. I heard of one church where the pastor was telling the congregation that he's going to, all their energy, all their programs, everything are going to focus on on younger people on the on the 30s and the 40s. And basically, what was communicated non-verbally was that if you're older and you don't like uh, the kind of music and formats that appeal to the those in their 20s, 30s, and 40s, then, well, you're just going to have to learn to adapt. 
And that's silly. I mean, the strength of any local church are the mature people, and the mature people are, are older people. The mature believers are going to be older believers. They're going to be the men and women in their 50s, 60s, 70s, and 80s who, who in many cases, have seen all these fads come and go, and they have real wisdom to understand the, that what needs to be taught uh, is the Word of God. So we see these fads and these different things come along every every decade or so, and they come up with ideas on how we can be more loving. And there's always new gimmicks for how to be more loving. Sometimes they operate within a uh, what they'll call anything from a mini church to a fellowship church to a home group. Small groups are the big rage. They have been for about 30 years now, and that's where the real life of the church is, is in the small groups, whether that's Sunday school or whether that's home church meetings. And, in fact, if you buy, uh, buy Lagos with all their basic stuff in there, there's a whole bunch of books in there about uh, leading small groups and developing small groups and how to teach small groups and it's small group this and small group that and, and everything. And it's all about methodology and gimmicks and uh, that kind of thing rather than just teaching the Word, that it's the Word that's the focus and that people need to be drawn uh, drawn to the word. And you have these other ways in which we can show that we love each other. And it comes across as phony. And one of the emphasis that I learned a number of years ago as a pastor is that, and my philosophy of ministry is that things of that nature need to come out of the spiritual growth of the congregation, not to be imposed by the pastor or the leader saying, you know, we need to be a loving church, so we're going to set up a committee and that committee is in charge of taking care of all the visitors. And are we're going to, uh, we want to make sure that all the young families have uh, recognized that we care about them, so we're going to do this kind of thing. Where it comes across as a phony program, some sort of top-down engineered uh, idea in order to, you know, make people feel welcome, make people feel loved, all of these things, rather than re- rec- just teaching the Word and teaching people to understand what that interpersonal dynamic should be among a body of mature, growing believers who are genuinely, out of their own spiritual growth, loving one another, caring for one another, taking care of one another, and all those one another passages uh, that we're going to look at. It's not a result of programs It's a result of the study of the Word of God and spiritual growth under the guidance of God the Holy Spirit, and that produces that sort of genuine uh, application that is so often uh, lost, and people run around trying to capture that in one way or another, and it almost always leads to, to some kind of a problem. So we are to consider one another in order to uh, stir up love and good works. And I pointed out that the word for stirring up is the Greek word paroxosmos, where we get the English word paroxysm. It means to rouse to activity, to provoke action, to, in some cases to provoke sharp disagreement, to, in, uh, to produce ardent in, incitement or to stir to action, has a variety of meanings. The basic idea is people respond to the teaching of the Word, and then they get excited from their own enthusiasm about the Word, not a manufactured um, excitement or emotion, because that won't last long. And then they begin to talk to other believers within that dynamic, 
and think about, well, you know, what can we do? How can we get involved What and using our spiritual gifts, uh, going down maybe to the hospital, visiting people, setting up a Bible study with children in the neighborhood, whatever it is, but it grows out of their own response to God's word, and it's not something manufactured uh, from the outside or from the leadership. Then uh, the writer qualifies what he means in his main command to think deeply about how to stir up one another, and he's going to use two participles. The first shows a negation, and the other shows something positive. And if you look at them, one says not forsaking the assembling of ourselves together, and on the other hand, exhorting one another. So you see when you put them together, the assembling together is related to exhorting one another. And if you're not assembled together in the sense of the meeting of the local church, then the framework for exhorting or encouraging one another isn't there. And that's why this isn't talking about what's happening down at Starbucks or what's happening at uh, uh, Burger King or down at the gym or someplace such as that. So there's a prohibition, a warning here, because some of these Jewish believers, Jewish background believers, have given it up. They've quit meeting with other believers. And if you're not meeting with the local church where you're hearing the Word of God and you're being encouraged by just the fact that there are other people there, then what happens is you're not in a place where you can be reminded by the Word of God, reinforced by the Holy Spirit, and encouraged by uh, relationships with other believers. I'm not saying that other believers are key to your spiritual growth. Your spiritual growth is determined by your volition. But But God created us to be social Now, that doesn't mean the church is a social institution. One of the things that I have, my little pet peeves over the years has been that when you read church pastoral ministry literature, the tendency for the last 50 years is to interpret the church as primarily a social organization that has secondary educational aspects. But when you read the Word of God, especially passages like Ephesians 4, that the gift of pastor, teacher, and evangelist are given to equip the saints to do the work of the ministry. Other passages talking about teaching, training, instruction. The focus of the local church is on education. The social aspects will take care of themselves because God created us in his image. And part of the image-ness of God is that capacity for relationship, and God existed as a social being for all eternity within the society of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. So that at the very core of that relation, that threefold relationship, when the Scriptures talk about the fact that God is love, He is love unlike any other God that man manufactured, such as Allah, God is eternally loved because there is an eternal object for his love. The Father has an eternal object in the love of the Son. The Son has an eternal object in the love of the Father. The Holy Spirit has an eternal object or has eternal objects in the Father and the Son. So there is this eternal dynamic of a society, of a social dynamic within the Trinity. So when God creates man, he doesn't create man to be social socially isolated 
from one another. Men are designed, mankind is designed for social uh, interaction and to encourage one another in a positive way. Of course, that, like anything else, can be, can be distorted and perverted. But when you are in a classroom, and I, I argue this when I talk about the problems I see with Internet learning, Internet seminary classes, distance learning, that's good in some ways. There's always the inconvenience of having to pack your bags, move across the state, move to the next state, move halfway across the country to go someplace to be trained and to get your education to be a pastor. And so many many men think, well, I'm, I'm married now and I've got a baby on the way or I'm just married, I've got a job, and I just can't see how God's going to open the door for me to move to Albuquerque or to uh, Washington, D.C. area, Capital Seminary, some other place where they can get a, a seminary training. And so they think they can get it on the Internet. And there is an intangible, immeasurable element, but necessary element that takes place in a man's education when he is sitting in a room with other men with the gift of pastor-teacher and they're studying Greek that cannot be replaced when they're sitting in their office somewhere in front of their computer isolated from these other individuals. And there's a dynamic that takes place when you're with these men and you leave class and you say, man, I just don't understand this. And some other guy says, well, it's simple. And he explains it in a way better, a way that's much better than what the professor just did. Or you get together and you study. There was a, I had a group of men my first year in seminary that had lunch together every day. And in those days, Dallas Seminary had Lamb Auditorium, which would seat about 250. And they didn't have a cafeteria or lunchroom, and they had built this about three years before I started seminary. And we would go in there, and we would pull the chairs out into a circle, and we would sit there with our sandwiches and our Cokes, and we had our three-by-five cards with all the notes we had taken on the reading for the assignment the night before. Now, the class that came up after that had everybody in our class in there, which was about 200 men. And we would sit there, and we would drill each other over the 30 or 40 pages of reading that was due that day because we always had a quiz on the reading before class. And you would have a 10-question quiz. And the book that we had for that class was an Old Testament introduction by... by uh, by R.K. Harrison, and on most of the pages, half the page was fine print footnotes, and half the questions on the quiz would come out of the footnotes. And so you had to know every every piece of minutia that was in those 30 to 40 pages of reading, and he was and the prophet only asked 10 questions. And so we would, the only way to make it through was for a group of five or six guys to get together with all the notes they'd taken on three-by-five cards and just drill each other for an hour before class and ask each other any possible question that we could. And that's comparable to this dynamic that uh, the writer of Hebrews is talking about here with this interaction in the body of Christ. And like I said, this isn't the kind of thing that you'll see in some churches. There, there have been churches like uh, Ray Stedman had a Peninsula Bible Church. He's with the Lord now. 
Uh, he had Peninsula Bible Church out in the San Francisco area through much of the 50s, 60s, 70s. He came out with a book called Body Life. This was the new gimmick in the in the 70s. And we're going to minimize the role of the pastor, and we're just going to have these meetings of the church where all the people in the church with their different spiritual gifts do different things. And, you know, but there's no real... The edification comes from the Word of God, so but that made everybody feel important, so that had its popularity, and the church grew to a couple of thousand. That was one of the early big, big churches, and because he did so well, Dallas Seminary always tended to parade Red Stedman, Ray Stedman out as one of the great, um, you know, great graduates of Dallas Seminary. Look how God blessed his ministry. There were many good things about uh, Stedman's ministry, but that was just one of those kinds of trendy. Um, things that have come along in the last 30 years that try to take passages like this and do something something different that creates this artificial type of of body life and that's not at all what I'm what I'm talking about this is a dynamic that comes as a result of people just genuinely uh enthused about the study of the word and some of you remember times when you were in Bible churches and doctrinal churches, when it was an exciting, happening place. And after Bible class, people got together and they would go talk about things and, and what they had learned in Bible class that night. And it was exciting. They couldn't wait to be back the next night. And, and that's the kind of dynamic that's going on here where there, it, it all centers around the meeting of the local church. Now, on this slide, I've got at the bottom the three of the key Greek words that are here. The first word, uh, in katalepo, is uh, the word that's translated not forsaking, and it means to leave something, to leave it behind, to forsake it, to abandon it, basically to quit getting together with other, other believers in the study of God's word. That's always at the center of the understanding here. Uh, as is the manner of some. They had these Jews that under the pressure of persecution and rejection, and it's not popular, and their Jewish families and family and friends weren't, uh, would not have anything to do with them. They were peeling off, and they weren't assembling with others anymore. When you go through tough times, sometimes you don't want to be around other people. But it encourages you. Just the fact that you see other people that are there tells you that, it's not just me. That's one of the problems I have with, with streaming video. And I think it's a great thing when you have people in this town who have difficulty getting here on Tuesday night or Thursday night. Because it, sometimes it is difficult because of work schedules and other things. But sometimes it's just too convenient to not make the effort to go to Bible class two nights a week. Some of you remember going to Bible class five nights a week and three times on Sunday. Now let's just stay home this one other night during the week and live stream. And when you have a crowd of 40, 50, 60, 70, 80 people in here, the dynamic that comes from seeing uh, 100 people in this room as opposed to the dynamic of seeing 25 or 30 here every night has an, an impact on us. We may say, well, you know, it really shouldn't. That's putting our eyes on people. But... That's the way man's made, and we, we get encouraged by the fact, look at these other people that are excited. We can't see the, the number of people that are out there. In the old days of cassette tapes, 
when you had tape orders coming in, you could write up a nice report at the end of the year and say, you know, we sent out, uh, we, we filled an average of, you know, 1,000 or 3,000 or 5,000 tape orders last month. But now when everything's downloaded off the Internet, we have no clue how many are listening, and it's it's surprising. I think there's a lot more than I I think there's a lot out there, but I have no idea of measuring that. And it's probably a good thing that I don't have any idea. But but we get encouraged by knowing that we're not here fighting this battle alone. And I think that's one of the side benefits of the Chafer Seminary Pastors Conference is all of a sudden there are people who realize that that there's a lot of good, solid, doctrinal teaching pastors all over this country, and not all of them come to that conference. But this last year, I think we had between 45 and 50. That's the most we've ever had. And I'm talking going since about at least 1975. I think that's just about the most we've ever had at a, at a pastor's conference. And then there were another 15 or 20 uh, who were involved in some kind of auxiliary church ministry as a seminary professor or a missionary or something like that. And they get together, and these men get together, and they realize there's other men who are facing some of the same challenges that they're facing in the churches, and some of them are just practical challenges. Like, I've got, I've got five teenagers in my church, but I need to have a team class. But when you have five teenagers, and this week they're all there, next week there's a football game and one guy shows up, that's, the dynamic is lost. The next week he doesn't want to come because he's the only guy. And so three others show up, but he doesn't show up, and then they're saying, well, what about so-and-so? And, and it, it just, there's a dynamic that doesn't work there. And so should we have a Friday night team class, or how do we do this? And these are, these are important questions and good questions, and guys get to realize that other men are, are struggling with those same things, and some of these guys solve the problems, and that, hey, that's a great solution. I'm going to try that when I go back. Because the goal is not to try programs or gimmicks to get more kids there. It's that somehow I, we need to get our teens in front of the Bible on a regular basis so that they can be strengthened and prepared to face the problems in life and that, that <coughs> they come along after you, after you leave home. So the negative command here is not to forsake. You can't do it. Uh, you cannot consider one another to stimulate them to love and good deeds if you're forsaking the assembling of uh, ourselves together. So you can't do it by not assembling, but you do do it by assembling and encouraging one another. And this is a word we'll see several times in the passages we're going to look at in a minute. The word here is parakaleo. Parakaleo. And it means to summon, uh, to invite, to exhort, to encourage, to implore. It has a range of meaning. Sometimes it borders, it's a, it's a form of teaching, uh, exhorting somebody. That's where we get our word hortatory from exhort, H-O-R-T. Uh, it has that idea of challenging people. I like that word better than I do hortatory, exhort. It means to challenge people with the truth of God's word and their responsibility, uh, as believers. 
And we do that in many ways with with others. Now, let me say a word of warning. As you go through this, there's all these little caveats I have to put in here because there's always people who don't know how to engage socially with other people. And the more we get into our internet internet age and our self-absorbed, narcissistic culture, we find people have to be taught how to have relationships. That's When I've done marriage counseling, that is 90% of the problem. They just don't know how to have good manners towards each other. They don't know how to listen to each other. They don't know how to talk to each other. They don't know how to have a relationship with another human being. They don't know how to handle disagreement because they've just never had that, that kind of training. And as we get more and more removed from our roots in this country with little parental discipline and all you're raising is a bunch of children who are hyper-narcissists, then when they get married and you've got two little hyper-narcissists who've never had to control their sin nature in their life, that, that marriage is going to last uh, about six months or two years, and it's going to be pretty miserable. And so a lot of, of marriage counseling is nothing more than teaching people how to be a friend, how to have good relationships, how to deal with people with good manners. It's just basic, uh, basic socialization 101. And so... That's part of what is what's involved in in a, in a local church and in pastoring. You have to warn people though not to do certain things. When we have relationships with people, when we have friendships, you just think about your own life. You have three or four different what I call circles of intimacy. You have three or four close friends, maybe. Sometimes you might only have one, depending on uh, a lot of different factors. But you have one person to whom you can dis- with whom you can discuss just about anything in your life. Then you ha- and, and that's the, your most intimate level. Sometimes that's only your spouse. Sometimes it's your spouse. Sometimes you have another close friend. Sometimes some of us live in places where we have friends that we have grown up with. We're still in the geographical area where we grew up, and so we have some old friends and close friends that we can be uh, very intimate with. But a lot of people don't have that. Then you have another circle that's not quite as intimate. These are people that you see on a fairly regular basis. You may socialize with them. You may work out with them. You may play sports with them, go golfing with them, go shopping with them, uh, different things of that nature. And so there's another level of intimacy. Then there's a level of intimacy that involves people that you might see on a regular basis. You see them at church three or four times a week. You see them at the office, at work uh, almost every day. And you know some things about them and their personal life. They know some things about you and their personal and your personal life. But you really don't get into a lot of each other's lives or business. And it needs to stay that way. You don't want some of those people knowing anything more about you. Maybe you don't even like them knowing as much as they do know about you. And then there's a level of just, you know, where you just barely have acquaintances. You know their name. You see them. You recognize them. Those are those are those levels of intimacy. What happens in a local church is you get into some of these passages on, on passages on one another, admonishing one another, encouraging one another, and you get one person on one side of the church who run, sees a person on the other side of the church, and they see them say or do something that they don't think is right, and so they're immediately over there leaping from a fourth level of intimacy situation as if it's a first-level intimacy situation. And all they do is irritate, aggravate, and upset somebody because they, don't, they haven't built a context 
of trust and intimacy to talk to the other person. And all of a sudden they're just sticking their nose in somebody's business where it doesn't belong and it's never a good situation. And we always have to be sensitive to the balance there between uh, our friendship for someone and also respecting their privacy. But sometimes it's just necessary when someone is a friend and has been a friend and we've established those kinds of of conversations and uh, relationships in the past to say, you know, I've noticed this lately and I'm a little concerned. And make those kinds of comments. It's not invading someone's privacy if they have opened the door in the past to let us inside that circle of intimacy. And there are some people who are that way. There are also people, and we know, uh, we know some who just have a little bit difficult time understanding the whole concept of privacy, and so you tend to be a little resistant there. Also, within a local church, you have different personalities. You have people who are basically shy and, and, and they want to be private. Now, a lot of times people like that will go to a larger church because they can blend in and disappear in a church of 500 or 1,000 and nobody's going to notice them. They're very comfortable like that. And I don't think there's necessarily anything wrong with that. What I think is wrong is when somebody else who's very outgoing and gregarious comes along and says, you know, you need to be more involved. You need to have more felt. You need to be coming to some uh, events with some other people. And they're imposing their views on this other person who just basically wants to um, you know, they, they come up to, they come to the church, they visit a few times, they, it's like sticking their toe in the water and they just kind of swish it around a little bit and pull it out and then a little bit later they may dip a little more of their foot in there, but they don't want to just move in real fast and get to know people. And, and that's fine. People come from all kinds of backgrounds and a problem I see in a lot of churches and have seen, and I've been in all kinds of different churches, is that there's a tendency to create a one-size-fits-all application of, of scriptures like this. And that's just as people are so different. And they come from so many different kinds of backgrounds and histories and personalities and everything. But as we grow together and as we get to know each other, as people open themselves up to us in friendships and relationships, then we can do more of these things in an intimate way without invading or violating uh, somebody's uh, privacy. So we're prohibited from... Uh, forsaking the assembling of ourselves together in the framework of, of worship and teaching, as is the manner of some. But on the other hand, we're to exhort one another, and so much the more as you see the day approaching. And the, the term the day approaching is realizing that we're getting closer and closer to the rapture of the church. That's not date setting. It's still imminent, but we know, and the writer of Hebrews knew, that uh it's, it's getting close. He thought it was close, but it really wasn't. But we know uh, now that, uh, that it is. Uh, it's probably much closer than it was then, so it's even more important. Now, let me just say a few comments in terms of application and thinking through this whole issue of being involved in a local church because we come out of a tradition more so than other churches and groups of being heavily dependent on electronic media, whether you want to call them tapers or streamers or uh, whatever term you want to use, we've all come out of that background, and we all know that there are a lot of people who have found it very comfortable 
to not be involved in a local church and become very isolated and just sit at home uh, watching a DVD, watching live streaming, or um, or just or listening to tape recorder, MP3, something of that nature. And as I pointed out earlier when I talked about in a seminary class, the same thing's true in a local church, is there's just a certain dynamic that occurs when we get with other believers. Furthermore, there are things that can never happen when you're sitting at home alone in front of a uh, tape recorder that are necessary in the body of Christ. Notice that all the images that the Lord used of the church have to do with a unity, like a team, a body, something like that. And you can't use your spiritual gift to benefit other believers. And the purpose that we were given spiritual gifts is to use them within the context of the local church, not to use them in your business, not to use them in other social groups that you're involved in, but to use your spiritual gift to minister in in whatever area that is within the local church to one another. And if you're not involved in in a group of believers, then you can't function in your spiritual gift. And a second thing that's important is the Lord's table. The Lord's table needs to be taken on a regular basis. And the normative vision uh, in the New Testament is that believers get together as a group for the teaching of the word, the observing of the Lord's table, praying together, and encouraging one another. But we live in an era today where because of technology, uh, believers can isolate themselves. They can become spiritual islands which are are separate, independent atoms that don't ever see each other or connect to each other. Uh, And so they choose, because it's a little bit easier because of our hectic schedules, uh, to not do that. Now, when I talk about the importance of being involved in a local church and meeting together, I'm thinking in terms of a normative situation. I recognize that there are exceptions, but you never teach in light of exceptions. You teach in light of the normative situation uh, in a local church. I can think of all kinds of historical exceptions. If you were living in Missouri in 1830, it was real difficult to get together with other believers. It was real difficult to get together with anybody because you lived 50 miles from the nearest person. And there are different historical circumstances where it was very difficult for believers to get together with other believers. But we're not talking about those. You don't set your patterns on the basis of exceptions. You set them on the basis of the normative uh, mandates of Scripture. There are also people who, for many legitimate reasons, just can't attend a solid local church. Sometimes this is because of health problems. Sometimes it might be because of financial problems. Uh, Sometimes it may be because in their particular geographical locality, there just isn't a church that they are comfortable with. Now, that's another problem that I'll address in a minute. Sometimes they're not comfortable with it, and they need to just get over it and be involved because of how God can use them, not because of what they're going to get. That's that narcissistic idea that comes up again. I need to go to that church, and he's not teaching me anything. Well, you're listening to Robbie Dean or Bob Theme or somebody else 50 hours a week. You can go to that church and ignore what the pastor says because he's never going to feed you anything anyway. And you're there to say, Lord, I'm not here as a know-it-all to give everybody the answers, but I'm here because God may use me in some way. Gene Brown was over at the house the other night, 
And Gene was talking about the fact that last spring and summer when he was living up in Plano, during, or I guess it was a year before that, when, um, when Phyllis was uh, uh, in her last two or three months, that on Sunday morning he would get up and go to the early service over at, um, I forget the name of it now, but it was probably the largest Baptist church in Dallas. And the pastor there, Gene Brown forgot more about what the Bible teaches than that pastor ever learned. But he went to the Sunday school class, and, and they would waste half the hour just sitting out in the fellowship area drinking coffee. But people would start asking Gene questions, and he would start, he would just give the answers Gene would give. And before you know it, after three or four weeks, he's got a little group of people there that uh, are beginning to say, you know, you're, you're saying some really interesting things. I've never heard this before. This guy who's teaching Sunday school class doesn't do this. Or I know of another case where... Um, uh, one man, uh, when he wasn't trying to show off his Bible knowledge or anything, but he was sitting in a, one of these Sunday school classes where the teacher who didn't have time to prepare would go around and say, now, what do you think about this passage? And what do you think about this passage? And so this guy realized what was going on. And so what he did was he started stud- really studying for the passage that was supposed to come up in the Sunday school quarterly the next week. And when the guy started asking him questions, he started giving the answers. And people are sitting there looking at him like, where in the world did he get this stuff? This is, this is great. And those who were really hungry for the word started responding. And this particular individual, uh, grew up here in Houston, was at a, uh, doctrinal church here for many years, moved up to the, uh, Dallas Fort Worth area and goes to a church up there that's sort of a quasi church growth, emergent church church, uh, pastored by the son of a well-known pastor here in Houston, so I won't mention his name. And uh, and the, the church doesn't teach anything, but they have these little mini-churches or cell groups that meet around, and so he got involved in that one. And as he would be asked questions and just tell what he knew without any sort of an arrogant attitude. Now, that's a problem a lot of people have, is that they, they, they're, they're, they get upset, they get irritated, they get angry that, you know, this guy's not teaching me anything. I'm going to show him. Well, you've already lost it. Go home, get back in front of your tape recorder. You're not going to do any, have a ministry with anybody because people feel that hostility. They feel that arrogance. They, they sense that, and they're not going to listen to you. But he's just very relaxed, and, and after about six months, the guy who led this little group had to go on vacation. And so he asked him to take over and to teach. Now he, he's the guy who teaches that group all the time. And they, they're supposed to be limited to 20 people, but they get about 40 that come, and they don't want to go split off into another group. And they'll have pool parties and different things like that. And everybody's gathered around him asking him questions about the Bible because they want to learn the Bible. And um, Bill Stebbins was listening to me back around 2000. He was at uh, uh, up in um, Kentucky, uh, he went at Fort Campbell. He was at uh, uh, Fort Knox. And he was going through, uh, uh, he was teaching in the advanced armor school there. And he started listening to me, and he said, well, I can find a church. Now, he must have tried a couple of dozen churches, but he found a little Baptist church just outside of town that was fairly solid. The pastor was kind of lordship, and it wasn't long before uh, uh, Bill uh, visited with him. And the guy said, well, listen, you like to teach. I, I need a Sunday school teacher. Why don't you teach the adult Sunday school class? And so for the next two years, uh, Bill taught that Sunday school class, taught him free grace, 
taught them the gospel, taught them dynamics of spiritual life, and um, they just had had a fabulous uh, ministry there. And so you never know how God might use you. And then, um, you know, one other uh, story is a uh, guy who works with uh, with with uh, Morris Proctor. And um, I just met this guy a couple of years ago. His name is uh, um, Boos. Um, what's his first name? I just... Art Booth. And Art and his family grew up listening to doctrine, listening to tapes. He was in the military for four or five years, got introduced to Bible doctrine, teaching the Word. And, uh, but he knew he needed to be a part of a local church because that's where you take communion. That's where you can have a ministry with other believers. And so all these years he's been involved in a, in a, in a local church, but he would listen to tapes every day. And uh, some eight or ten years ago he started listening to me. And... Um, and although I don't play a part in this, his listening to me was just tangential. But he um, he was wanting to know more about the original languages. And almost anybody who sits in a doctrinal church for a long says, oh, well, I'd like to know a little Greek or Hebrew or how I can study in the original languages a little bit. And so he found out about this program that had come out, called, this Bible study program called Lagos. So he bought Lagos and he kind of played with it and said, you know, there seems to be some horsepower under the under the hood here, but I don't really know how to use it. And so he just sort of put it aside. And a lot of people have had that experience. And then he heard about this guy named Morris Proctor who was teaching these classes on how to use Lagos. So he went to one, went to two or three, and before long he'd start, like most of us do, start calling Morris up on the phone and getting to know Morris. And he and his wife, he retired, and he and his wife got to know Morris and his wife uh, personally. And Art said, you know, I'd love to help you. Just volunteered. I'd love to help you. I'd love to use whatever God's given me to help you do this because when you teach these classes, you need people out in the audience who can help. Now, Art and his wife travel with them. One day, uh, Art, Art and his wife, one weekend, were uh, staying with uh, Morris and Cindy. Up, They live up in Murfreesboro, Tennessee, and Art's talking. And, and Morris told me this. He said, he had been talking about this pastor he listened to on tape for years. And one day I just turned to him and I said, Morris, who are you? He, he said, Art, who are you listening to? He says, I'm listening to a guy named, down in Houston named Robbie Dean. Morris said, I know Robbie. So, you know, but, but that's a great ministry that Art developed because he was willing to overlook the flaws and the shallowness at a local church to see how God would use him. And that's, that's important. Now, when I... That's one area of challenge to people. But I also have some caveats that I need to make sure we're, uh, that I put out here. And one caveat is that, uh, there are some people who are listening to me and they're going to think that, um, well, there just really isn't a church around here. They're, I've given them an excuse and they're going to drive the truck through it. And they may go look at one church or two churches and looking for churches is worse than looking for a job. Because there, there are so many of them, and there so many of them today are just such a waste of time. In fact, I talked to a lady the other day who called me, and she said, you know, I haven't been to church in three months because it's just a waste of time. And, uh, and many, more and more people, unfortunately, are feeling that way. So there are many people who won't give it a try, and they'll use any excuse to, to justify their own lack of effort. But then there's other people who are really sensitive 
and they'll listen to what I what I said. And they'll be like a guy I mentioned a couple of weeks ago who was up in Vermont, and he felt like he needed to get his kids involved in a local church, and the best church in his area in a small town didn't even believe in the physical bodily resurrection of Christ. And after he'd gone there a month, he called me up and he said, you know, I'm really trying to do what you said and be involved in a local church, but they're all terrible. I said, well, don't do it. You know, don't sacrifice basic key doctrines uh, just so just to to fit some legalistic idea of being involved in a local church. But if you can, you should. And uh, someone who can uh, attend, uh, I'm really addressing this to people who can attend a solid local church, but they won't or they don't. Because for some reason they don't want to get up and drive five miles because that's not my favorite pastor. My favorite pastor lives, you know, three states over. Well, if that's your favorite pastor, move three states over. But God didn't put you, if that's where you need to be, then one of you is is out of God's geographical will. You need to be there. That pastor needs to be here. But God put you here to have a ministry in the body of Christ in Houston not to just sit on your butt at home staring at a computer screen or listening to an MP3 player and not having any contact with any other believers and think you're fulfilling these mandates of one another in the Bible because it's just you and your Sony tape recorder or you and your Olympus MP3 player, you and your iPod. Me and my iPod, we could make a little song like that. But people think that's that's it, and that just doesn't help you resolve these mandates related to the body of Christ. And you can't use distance as an example. I had four or five people when I was at Preston City who drove. I love being able to say this. They drove from two states away to come to Bible class. They had to drive all the way through an intervening state to get to Preston City Bible Church each way. Of course, up there, Rhode Island's not even the size of Houston, so they came from Massachusetts and cut through Rhode Island, and we were just on the other side of Rhode Island. But it was a 45 to 50-mile drive each way, and they rarely missed class. You can't use distance as an excuse. Now, it can be under certain circumstances if you're uh, living someplace on the west side of Houston, like I did when I first uh, moved back after college, and I lived less than 100 yards from where I live now, and I taught in Channel View. And I would have to leave at 6 o'clock in the morning, drive all the way down to Channel View, and then when I got home about 6 o'clock at night and still had to go to the grocery store and laundry and everything else, I said, there's no way I can execute life chores and go to Bible class every night. So I'm going to listen to a tape recorder. But I still got involved at a local church because I just lived around the corner from one, and that way I was involved with a group of believers, but I was getting all of my doctrine from where I could really get fed doctrine. That's the key, we need to, and we need to open ourselves up to different opportunities of, of ministry and not isolate ourselves as believers. And that's one of the things I think that's happened is we've got a certain number of believers in the doctrinal movement who know a lot more than a lot of than 95% of the other pastors that are out there. 
But they would rather keep their light under a bushel and hide it in their room with their tape recorder than go out and get involved and have an impact on a local church. And, uh, you know, I've given you these little anecdotes from from uh, Gene Brown and from Art Booz and from uh, uh, several other people who have done different things. God's used them in great ways, and because of their love for the Word, it becomes contagious and infectious. And there are people in all of these churches that want to know something about the Bible, and they're just so frustrated because they don't know where to go to find out anything about the Bible. And you can be a little Jonah, and I use that intentionally because they're resistant to doing it. You can be a little Jonah and go to... um, some mega church in your area, you never know how God's going to use you because you're not there to think that that he's going to be your pastor. That was another question. Somebody said, well, when you say I need to be involved in a local church, does that mean I have to quit listening to you and go join this other church and, and not listen to you anymore? I said, no. If you've got a local church you can be involved in, go go there on Sundays and Wednesdays, get to know people, and and but you're not going to get fed by them, and you know that going in. You're going to get fed from the same source you've been getting fed, but you can go to that church and you can have uh, an opportunity there. And sometimes, one other little caveat, sometimes it's just your maturity. You're, I know that there were times in my life when I knew that that was the right thing I ought to do, but I didn't have the maturity to do it. And that wasn't a wise thing for me to go because I'd come off as being too arrogant or too irritated or too uh, upset with the shallowness and superficiality of whatever the uh, Sunday school teacher was doing. So... That's a lot of unusual little stories and ideas, but these questions just keep coming up again and again. Pastors ask these questions. People in different locations um, ask these questions. And we have to realize that we are all products of a narcissistic, self-oriented culture. And the thing that feels most comfortable to be us is to do that which is more self-oriented than other-oriented. And when you look at the Scriptures, while the emphasis is on the need for you to grow spiritually, your spiritual growth is not the end. It is the means to an end. And you look at passages like Ephesians 4, uh, 10 and 11, that God has given these gifts, apostles, prophets, uh, evangelists, pastors, and teachers to equip the saints so they can have a good spiritual life. Is that what that said? No. Equip the saints to do the work of ministry. I think one of the things I hate is when people say, this is my minister. No, you are my ministers. I'm the equipper, and I'm training you to have a ministry. And that's the role of the pastor is to equip the saints the believers in the congregation, to do the work of the ministry. Your spiritual growth is important. It's vital. It is the training focus so that you can then go out and have that uh, have that ministry. But part of your ministry is in the local church toward one another. And so next time we will get into the doctrine of one another. And the scripture says a lot about what we are to do for one another, and these are all commands. But there's a lot of distortion on a lot of the, I'm going to have to explain some of these verses because there's a lot of people who take some of these out of context. They're easily, some are easily distorted. So we have to understand this. But there is a ministry we are to have because as the scripture says, we are members 
one of another. We're not just a bunch of isolated people on different de- uh, desert islands, deserted islands. We are unified as a team in the body of Christ for a mission. And so we have to understand that. So we'll come back next time and continue to understand uh, the role of one another. Father, we thank you for this opportunity to study your word, to be challenged, to think a little differently, differently perhaps about uh, the local church, its importance, involvement in a local church, the opportunity to look at a local church as a place to have a ministry rather than just a place to uh, be fed, to go and get something from a rather uh, self-oriented perspective. Father, we pray that you would challenge each of us in our own areas of uh, life and application with these truths and that we would have the humility to recognize what the Word of God is teaching. Uh, we pray this in Christ's name. Amen.